My, my conviction, and it's, uh, if I can speak on behalf of Soul Survivor Ministries as well, yes, it is true, I am Mike Filibash's boss. Um, despite the, uh, the, the, the personal history Gareth's just given you, I'm really only 30 years old, but if you work with Filibash, you start to look like this. So. <laughs> the, it's a Soul Survivor value as well, and we, we summarize it like this, that we believe all roles of leadership in the church are a matter of God's calling, of gifting by the Spirit, irrespective of gender. God's calling, because Jesus calls the people he wants to lead his church, uh, as a matter of gifting, because God always gives the gifts you need for the things he's called you to do. And we think whether a man or woman has got practically nothing to do with that whatsoever, except men and women will will do things differently and in ways that complement one another. So that's the case I'm going to argue for you tonight. Uh, and let's begin with this great charter passage about new humanity in Christ. Uh, Paul says in Galatians 3, For in Christ you're all children of God through faith. As many as you were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. Uh, it's your identity in Him. There's no longer Jew or Greek. There's no longer slave or free. There's no longer male and female. All of you are one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's offering, offspring, heirs according to the promise of God, and on it goes. Uh, lying behind that is a prayer that... Paul, Saul of Tarsus, the right-wing Pharisee, would have prayed every week in the synagogue. It went roughly like this, God, I thank you that I wasn't born a Gentile, I wasn't born a slave, and I wasn't born a woman. And the women in the synagogue were meant to add their little prayer that they thanked God for making them who they were. So actually, lying behind this very famous passage is how the Gospel of Jesus radically changes, not just how people can relate to God, but their status in relationship to one another. And the Gospel breaks down the barriers between people as well as between, between people and God. And some people say it's not appropriate to address the issue of women and leadership using this verse because it's clearly primarily about relationship to God through Jesus, uh, baptised into his death and so on, our identity in him and that uh, our basic unity we have in that. But you don't need to have read the New Testament very much to know that uh, Jews couldn't, who came to know the Messiah could no longer look down on Gentiles. The way they related to Gentiles in the church had to change. It wasn't just a God towards God thing, it was a towards one another thing. And that uh, it may have been quite impossible for the early church to stop the being slavery. It was one of the massive institutions of, of, of the Roman Empire. But uh, you've only got to read the little letter called Philemon to know that, uh, uh, that Philemon, the slave owner, was to receive back Onesimus, his runaway slave, 
who now was his brother in Christ and was a leader in the church who had been of real assistance to Paul, in quotes, no longer as a slave, but as a brother. And Paul throws in, and uh, if he owes you anything, because maybe you nick something when you run away, uh, I'll pay. Uh, so we should expect that in just in the same way, why would not the way men and women related change as a result of them being together in Jesus? But to really see that, we need to go back and pick up the the original design. I want to suggest to you that uh, working through a lot of issues in scripture, you need a, there's a framework uh, that begins with creation. How did God make it and intend it at the beginning? And on this issue of whether or not women and women may share as equal with men in leadership, that's vital. Uh, there's then what has gone wrong? How has our fallen this? How has our rebellion against God distorted what God intended? Uh, you then have uh, how does the redemption that comes through Jesus change things both immediately and in the long term and then consummation what's, what's that life of heaven and earth made new get, get going, to, going to be like and I'll, I'll follow that framework to some extent in what I say to you and I want to suggest to you that in the creation story there is absolutely nothing whatsoever that subordinates women to men. Absolutely nothing. It begins with chapter 1. Really confusing actually. I've slipped in a Hebrew word. Genesis 1, 27. So God created humankind, Adam. In Genesis 1, the word for human or humankind is Adam. It does not become a, a, a bloke's name until there's another person around who later on, though not immediately, will be called Eve. So humankind is created in the image of God. God created Adam in his image. In the image of God he created them, male and female, he created them. The, someone wrote, the primal form of humanity is the fellowship of man and woman. And the image of God in human beings is best seen in the partnership between the two. Not just in marriage, but in the whole complementary nature of the way they work together. Uh, so, uh, everything that a woman is, as intended by God, is a reflection, it, it is, is an image of God. Everything feminine, everything female, uh, the, as God intended, is of his very nature and imaged in a certain way. Of being everything a man is of God's very nature, imaged in a certain way. And where does authority come in? God blessed them, male and female, said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion. So it's this male and female partnership which only together fully reflects God's image that exercises authority. Of, not authority as the owners of creation, but authority under God as the stewards of creation. <coughs> so the only thing you get about authority and leadership in uh, Genesis 1 is something that goes with being human and put very firmly in terms 
of this partnership. And Gen I'm not going to kill you with text. I'm just going to put one main text up the heading and then say a little bit more. Uh, Genesis 2, having made the great theological statement that God creates humankind in his image and it's a partnership where they have authority. Then if you like, the focus, the, the, the lens zooms in and you get the little cameo of how we actually end up with this male and female. The, the man is created first. You can't build a lot of theology on that, but he is created first. Mainly, according to the text, to realise his incompleteness, not good for him to be alone. The, then the woman is created, the text says, to be a helper for him. Genesis 2.18 Lord God says, it's not good the man should be alone. I will make a helper for him as his partner or fit for him, new international version, or corresponding to him or adequate for him. The Hebrew can mean and does mean all of those. Now, the moment you get the word helper, you know, a system comes into your mind. <clears throat> Slight problem. This word helper comes 21 times in the Old Testament. It is never used as a subordinate. Uh, the majority of times it's used of God. The Lord is my helper, of whom then should I be afraid is the same word as a helper fit for him. So there's absolutely no hint here of an assistant. This is not mate as in plumber's mate. I do the work and you have the tools. This is someone fit and equal to. Uh, and the guy has been naming animals. He doesn't name his partner yet. He recognizes her. He says in verse 23, At last, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, woman because taken out of man. And you need to know this Hebrew play on words. His ish, that's the Hebrew for man, and she's isha. He, he, when he wakes up, having contributed being asleep in a rib, uh, he takes one look and says, this is one like me. And God's intention is the helper corresponding to, or fit for him. A word that never means subordinate. And... And so, and so it, uh, it goes on. That's God's intention. Partners sharing the dominion and the authority of the earth. And there is just nothing in there that says one is in charge. Uh, the order of creation doesn't work because there's plenty of times when God decides that the first one who came isn't the one who's going to lead. King David, youngest child. Jacob, second one of the twins to be born, uh, and so on and so on. So, and if right through Genesis 1, humankind is the crown of creation, if it builds up, and when humans are made, God says that's very good, and, and if it's getting more and more important as you go, well, the woman's created last. So there's just nothing in Genesis 1 or 2 that says anything other than these are complementary equals 
whose partnership reflects the image of God, and who as those who are God's image bearers reflect that image to the world and exercise responsible stewardship to it. Until injustice breaks into our world uh, through human sin and humans and human fallenness. Everything goes wrong. Uh, she responds to the tempter and commits a sin of commission. She does what she's not meant to do. He is standing with her when she is tempted. Check it out, Genesis 3. She gave some to her husband who was with her. So he commits a sin of omission and then a sin of commission. They are equally responsible and God treats them as equally responsible. And then when he's ta he talks to each of them about the consequences, that work will be backpacking toil, childbirth will be painful, a whole slew of other things are going to go wrong, one of their kids is going to kill the other of their kids. All human relationship. The fall breaks every relationship. And the relationship between man and woman is just one part of the picture. The relationship between humans and the earth. The relationship above all between humans and their creator. The relationship between humans in families as, as, the, as the first murder comes and, and on it rolls. And, and one element of that, God says, your desire will be for your husband and he'll rule over you. He doesn't say... This is my creation order. He does not say, this is the way I want it to be from now on, it's her fault. He says, this is one of the, this is one of the series of consequences I'm stating that are the result of human fallenness. And in chapter 3 verse 20, uh, he didn't name her in the creation story like one of the animals, he recognized her as one like him. After the fall, he names her as though she were one of the animals. The name Eve does not appear until then, although we sometimes, as a summary, talk about the whole thing as the story of Adam and Eve. The, and the tragedy is that the abuse of women by men has been a characteristic of human history ever since. All sorts of ways, and I'm not and I'm not saying that all relationships in which men are leaders and women and women women are, are under under their authority are autom automatically abusive. Please don't misunderstand me. Uh, but we live in a world where one of the characteristics of sin is the breakdown of the relationships between men and women, uh, and that very, very often has been uh, one that has proved to be an abuse of power. Uh, domestic violence, which in a minority of cases is women against men, but in the majority is men against women, is endemic, as far as I know, in every culture of the world. It's something about our fallenness. Uh, that harmony that God intended, that co-imaging is broken. And the, the, instead of an equal relationship, 
you get a relationship where in much of human history one, uh, one partner is dominant and the other is subordinate on the, on the basis of gender. Now I'm zooming through bits of the Bible because I'm going to leave you to ask me all the yes buts about verses you think I've skipped or you might have an alternative interpretation of and so on. But I do want to say there is a justice issue here. And injustice comes as a result of the fall. Uh, and Christ comes to bring restorative justice. It is one of the issues. And in his coming, the injustice is overturned. Uh, there are all sorts of elements in the Gospels about how that relates to the relationship between men and women. Uh, don't skip the opening verses of Matthew, even though it's the oldest of names. It's a symbolic telling of the genealogy of Jesus. In a culture at that time where descent came through the male line, and for a seemingly totally inexplicable reason, four women are named in the history. They're all in the family tree of Jesus. They all have, well, three of them morally dubious circumstances, and one and that the fourth was very badly treated. And it's as though Matthew's putting it in right at the beginning. Just as the wise men coming when Jesus is born is saying this is for the Gentiles too. This, uh, this message is sent loud and clear. Uh, if there is an example of faithful, obedient discipleship that stands out above any other in the New Testament, it's Mary, the mother of Jesus. Jesus, in his adult ministry, relates to women simply in a way that is not done in his day. Do you remember the story of the conversation with the woman of the well? Now he's talking to a woman who even the other women weren't talking to because she's having to come out at the time of the day when the women don't normally come because of her moral history. When the disciples come back, it says they're amazed that he is talking to a woman. Dignified rabbis did not speak to women outside of the home. In some cases, not even their wives. And here's this rabbi talking to a woman. God reveals her history. She becomes the evangelist through which her whole uh, town uh, comes to faith. Uh, but it's Luke's gospel in particular that uh, emphasizes the particular ministry of Jesus to women. In, in chapter 8 we hear that he's going through the cities and villages proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. The twelve were with him, and some women who had been cured through his ministry, some of whom were actually supporting him from their means. Now, uh, dignified rabbis did not travel round Galilee with a bunch of women. And yet Jesus' travelling team has the twelve, and these women, at least as others, and, 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 and a string of them are named. Paul would later copy that and would often travel with a, a church planting team that had women in it, in it as well as men. It was simply not what was done. Uh, Jesus once said, now, the kingdom of God is like a woman who lost a coin. And we're so used to picking up these stories. Saying the kingdom of God is like means 
God acting as king is like. So here's a rabbi saying God's like a woman. I mean, his predecessor rabbis would have been turning on their clap. He just didn't do that. But the, the, the one most wonderful story in Luke is Luke 10. Uh, Mary and Martha. Now, there's more rubbish been talked about Mary and Martha than almost any other passage, I think, in the Gospels. It's all about the importance of being rather than doing. Have you ever tried just being and not doing? <laughs> or doing without being? I mean, I know some of us are over-activists and stuff like that, but passage has nothing to do with it at all. Uh, the, the passage is about Jesus' affirmation of Mary. I mean, get, get the scene. As in some parts of Africa and Asia today, there is the men's bit of the house and the women's bit of the house. So the issue is not just Mary is not helping get the guy's dinner. The issue is she's sitting where she didn't ought to be. And uh, Luke says that she sat at the Lord's feet and listened to what he was saying. And that seems just a straightforward description until you find the other time in, in Luke Acts where the expression comes. And Paul says, I was raised, I had my training as a rabbi at the feet of Gamaliel. It's a technical term for being a disciple. And you were disciple, you were a disciple so that you could teach. That was the whole point. You were a disciple so that you could teach. Mary's getting quite upset about it, and Jesus says, Martha's getting quite upset about it, Mary has chosen the better part, which shall not be taken from her. In other words, she is sitting at my feet with these guys by right as someone that I accept and have called to be my disciple, to be trained by me how to teach. That, that's the big implication. Now, tragically, through the centuries, the church has been trying to take it away from her and her sisters ever since. That's what Jesus is saying. And, and then, of course, you get the, uh, the fact that it's these women disciples, these women who travelled with him from Galilee, who are the faithful ones who stay at the cross and then go to the tomb. And... Uh, only the beloved disciple and Peter a bit get anywhere near it. Uh, the guys cut and run. Yes, I know Jesus chose 12 male disciples. Uh, why did he do that? Well, why, what do you think 12 men was meant to make people think about if you knew the history of Israel? That there were 12 tribes and that the 12 sons or, or grandsons of, of Jacob, because uh, the, 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 the Levites were separate. So, when Jesus, after a night of prayer, comes down from this crowd of disciples, men and women, calls out 12 Jewish men, he's saying, I'm starting Israel all over again. I'm reconstituting Israel. It could not have been 12 Gentiles. It could not have been 12 slaves. None of them could have been Gentiles. None of them could have been slaves. None of them could have been women, if you're going to react the 12 uh, the disciples, but we will see in a little while at least one woman in the New Testament with the title of Apostle. So, Jesus breaks the, the, the public attitude to women 
calls them to follow him. They become his trainees, traveling with him, just like him. <coughs> and they are the faithful ones through to the end. And, and the, the first witnesses to the resurrection, and Mary Magdalene is sent, apostle to the men. The men don't believe her, of course, but not for them. And then the cross undoes the curse. The resurrection brings a new humanity, a new human race, a new creation in which men and women can relate to one another differently into being. And what does it look like in the New Testament? Some of us on this subject are so used to going straight to a couple of passages in 1 Corinthians that frankly aren't relevant, but I'll mention them in a minute, and a passage in 1 Timothy that is. Uh, and saying, well, that's clearly is Paul's attitude to women in leadership. Unfortunately, uh, if you believe that, you'll have to tear Romans 16 out of your Bible. So as the gospel unfolds in these relationships, and the text will be quite a bit smaller, but it's a nice big screen, every name underlined is a woman leader. Being greeted warmly and acknowledged by the Apostle Paul. Let's just go through them. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church at Kentria. Kentria is the port just a line in Corinth. It's one of the house churches that make up the church in Corinth. She is a deacon. See, in other words, she's a leader in that church. She's not, she's not a bishop or overseer, but she is a leader. When Paul writes to the Philippians, he greets the saints and, and the overseers or bishops and deacons, the leadership team. Uh, she is, uh, welcome her in the Lord as is fitting. Help her in whatever she may require of you. She has been a benefactor of many. That's the word patron. In other words, it is almost certainly the church meets under her patronage. It is almost certainly in her home, uh, and she is a leader of that church in her home. And she's a deacon, not deaconess, there's no Greek word, it's a, noun, it's a neuter noun that can, that can have men and women. And recent scholarship has shown that it means more than servant or assistant. It means authorised representative. She's probably mentioned first because she's bringing Romans to Rome. That's the sort of general consensus. <coughs> so Paul, as he begins his greeting, says, I want you to welcome Phoebe, who's bringing my letter. She's my delegate. She is an authorised representative of her church. She has clout. Help her in whatever she may require of you. Not she's a nice little old lady, give her the sides. But this is a leader, and you will respect the fact that she's a leader as she brings my letter to you. And this is the guy who's not meant to have women leading? We shall see. Verse 3. Greet Prisca and Aquila, who work with me in Christ Jesus, who risk their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles, and greet also the church in their house, incidentally, which means which they lead. 
Uh, the church and the house was the basic unit of the church in the early, in, in, in the New Testament time. The, there weren't any official church buildings, it wasn't safe for a start. Uh, so there were, there, were, there were meetings in homes of various sizes. Prisca or Priscilla and Aquila pop up various times through the New Testament. They help, they effectively found the church at Ephesus and when Paul is away, and a guy called Apollos comes through, teaching but not teaching really accuracy. Priscilla and Aquila, her name first, take him aside and correct his teaching. So this lady corrects an apostle's teaching because it's not good enough. Together with uh, Paul, they found the church at Corinth, uh, from which the letter is being brought. Uh, uh, the Emperor Claudius threw all the Jews out of Rome over a big complex about someone called Crestus which we think probably is Christus. In other words, there was a big dispute between the Jews in Rome about those who wanted the body of Jesus and those who didn't. And the emperor was fed up and threw the whole lot out. And that's how Priscilla and Aquila end up, end up in Corinth. Uh, but now he allowed them back eventually. They're back there. They're leaving a church in their house. They're mentioned about seven times. When they're just named as a couple, the normal form happens. Because the husband was normally named before the wife in that culture when you introduced a married couple. Uh, whenever ministry is involved, she is named first. As though she actually were the more significant Christian leader. But they functioned as, as, as a couple. So Paul greets them and they led a house church. They led the equivalent of a local church. Don't think house group think probably a craftsperson's uh, uh, place with the, the tent making shop down below and the living quarters up above and room for a gathering of perhaps 40 up to 60 people. So they're leading a church of about that size, which is as many as you can get into, into a craftsperson's house in the Roman Empire of the time. On it goes, greet Mary, who's worked very hard among you. And it just sounds as though, this is a nice holiday, holiday. The co-worker is a name for those who are part of Paul's travelling apostolic teams, planting churches. So worked very hard among you. Named specially for that is, is probably a reference to that. Greet Adronicus and Junia, my relatives who were imprisoned before with me. They're prominent amongst the apostles and they were in Christ before I was. Now, Paul's Damascus Road encounter was between three and seven years after the resurrection. Uh, these two are earlier than that. Andronicus and Junia, who are prominent among the apostles, which does not mean the apostles think they're rather good. It means amongst the apostles they're a prominent couple because of how long they have been there. So here we have a lady apostle. Now loads of translators believing it was impossible and therefore it couldn't be a female name, translated it Junias for a long time, rather than Junia. And Junias would be a bloke. Trouble is, there's about 200 uses of uh, this Greek word as a name in the general literature of the time that we have, and every single one of the 200 is a woman. It's quite extraordinary. Uh, down, 
Jump down a bit, verse 12, greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa, they're on the ministry team. Greet the beloved Persis who's worked hard in the Lord, again probably, uh, uh, probably co-workers and even Rufus's mother gets a mention on it, gets. But, 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 there are various others, Colossians, Nympha and the church in her house. It, it, it looks as though the, uh, the, the no, no, I'll, I'll stop there, but that's simply because of the time that's about you to come back to me in a moment. I, I don't mean I'm literally stopping the talk, I mean I'm stopping that bit, I'll be back to, back to the last bit. The, so, if we are to believe that none of the rest of what I said can be true because Paul says women can't believe us or have authority or something like that, uh, we have an awful lot of trouble, not just with uh, Romans 16. Uh, there are other names like uh, like Nympha and the Church in our house in, 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 in Colossians. But here is a whole list of women leaders. Uh, often with husbands, uh, but apart from widows, uh, you know, there's nothing in Roman culture that has loads of women who are single into their 20s or 30s. It just didn't work that way. Uh, widows would have been the only unaccompanied ones. Uh, so there is clearly a liberty within the church, only minimally reflected in Roman society, for women to be leaders alongside men, the, uh, including the most senior sort of roles. 1 Corinthians 11, while it's very concerned with either veils or uh, hair tied back, and with guys not having long hair, uh, in terms of what those things meant culturally in that day, it's quite clear that women prophesy and pray in the meeting. So when 1 Corinthians 12 says, keep silent, ask your husband at home, it can't mean don't pray a full part of the meeting. Because chapter 11 has just said pray and prophesy in the meeting, but wear the equivalent of your wedding ring. You can ask me the background of that one if you, if you want to later. That, that's, that's what it's about. Uh, uh, no appearance of moral irrespectability. Uh, and play a full part. Uh, ask your husband at home various possible reasons. I'll, I'll tell you one, and I've got another one up my sleeve if you want to ask the question later. Uh, in a lot of ancient Near East communities today, it's still the norm that women sit together and men sit together. Uh, far more men were educated than women, uh, and therefore you can understand the situation where a wife wants to ask, and if it's across the room, starts to get a little bit disrupted. It almost certainly isn't something about don't gossip, but do remember that those with a Jewish background, the men worshipped and the women behind a curtain literally naturally, because worship was men's work, as was teaching the Torah to children. So, uh, so you've got Jewish women with no knowledge of the gospel, with no, no knowledge of the scriptures before they, 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 they come to Christ, and, uh, and so on. So that may be what it's about. But, uh, an active participation in, in prayer and prophecy with a high view given to prophecy in 1 Corinthians is there, is there for women. 
But what there is, is a particular concern to avoid offence. Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 sums it up like this. Give no offence to Jews or Greeks or to the Church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, so they may be saved. There are times in the New Testament where a personal right to freedom actually isn't the main thing. Uh, the honour of the Gospel in the community is the main thing. So in 1 Corinthians 7, which has, says some extraordinary stuff about marriage, it actually says that uh, in marriage, uh, the, 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 the wife is the lord of her husband's body, and the husband is the lord of the wife's body, and you, you don't refuse one another except for your prayers. Totally equal, same language used to each. But a little later on, when it's talking about slavery, it says basically, if you can get your freedom to, if you can't, because they weren't free to, you know, just because you become a Christian didn't mean your master wasn't going to say, oh great, one of these for slaves. Or if you were a woman living in a male dominant culture, You can't change the mores of the culture outside about men and women. And so, again and again, you get uh, some things are more important than individual freedoms. And, and I was really brought up short uh, a couple of years ago. I, there was a group that come over from the Anglican Church in Malawi, and I met this highly articulate lady. She was a college lecturer with an MA, uh, uh, teaching away, but living in a culture where women do not address men in public unless the man opens the conversation, where just as in the Mary and Martha story, the men and boys have their food in one place and the women and girls in another. And I asked her about it and I said, how can you cope with that? Well, she said, well, I want it to change. But it is not the big presenting issue in my nation at the moment. Uh, poverty is, injustices, all sorts of other things. So if you like, we're not going to have a women's yeah, the, the women's right thing must come up at the right time. But other things are more important. My rights are not the most important thing, or the most important thing the gospel needs to address in my culture. It just made me stop and think for a moment. So there's, there's a, the honour of the gospel matters more. Uh, but if you're going to apply that today, uh, for anyone to say women cannot be leaders, it cannot be because it would be deeply offensive to our culture if we did anything different. What's these days deeply offensive to our culture is that, we don't, is that the world seems to be ahead of the church in recognising the liberty that Jesus brought. So it's a very different situation. The, then very quickly, uh, so I draw this to, to a close, and um, then you get the verse in Timothy. And too many people start with the verse in 1 Timothy 2. Uh, I don't permit a woman to, uh, to teach or exercise authority over a man, uh, as though that's the key verse and everything else follows it. I'm suggesting to you that the whole way the scriptural story unfolds has a different trajectory 
that there is nothing in the creation story that subordinates in any sense, however softly and nicely done, women to men. There is a, a, a radical, complementary equality, destroyed by sin, being restored in Jesus, and already in a male-dominant culture in the early church, beginning to show through in the roles that women were allowed. Uh, and, and that much of what uh, many other things we might like to have seen were not actually possible in that culture, but they are now. The, so what's going on in 1 Timothy? Well, Timothy is in Ephesus, is at the church that Priscilla and Aquila founded, her being named first. Is at the church where, in its foundations, uh, she corrected Apollos's teaching with him, but she corrected his teaching. She was named first. So you would think it was, and Paul seems to be thoroughly pleased about all of that. So we've got to think twice before we think Paul would never allow a woman in that sort of role. Uh, three questions you have to ask: What's going on in the Roman world? What's going on in Ephesus? What's going on? in the church in Ephesus. What's going on in the Roman world is a sort of liberation movement just amongst affluent wealthy women, the, the tiny minority, uh, called the New Roman Woman. It really is called that. Uh, which gave some women some rights and control of their own, either their own future, their own finances <coughs> and so on. I can tell you more about it uh, uh, if, if you like. Uh, the good side was it gave some greater rights. The downside was that as the men, as there was a double standard in those days about sexual behaviour. Uh, uh, <coughs> marriages were for convenience, not for love. Women were meant to be faithful. Men were expected to have partners. And so some of these women who began to get control of their own circumstances said, what's good for them? And it came out in how they dressed and all sorts of things. And the one Timothy passage starts about dress. Uh, there's a whole lot of scholarship lurking behind this. But this, that, so there's something about inappropriate female behavior in public that got the emperor so concerned at one point that he passed a rule that he, they had the right to uh, confiscate all the property of any husband who let his wife act this way. It was mainly widows, but if it was going to get marriage, uh, that's going on. Uh, what's going on in Ephesus? The Temple of Diana with an all-women priesthood who run the town. With temple prostitution and all sorts of things like that. So can you just imagine what inappropriate female leadership might have looked like in Ephesus at that time? No different than the Temple of Diana. There was a riot in Ephesus because the impact of the Gospel was so powerful and turning people down. The guy who made the silver statues organized a riot. What's going on in the church of Ephesus? False teaching. And some of the male leaders have gone off and begun to teach falsely. Uh, they have particularly convinced some of the women. Guess why? Because the women are not taught and don't have the background and are less educated and so on. Uh, some of those women have gone from house to house passing on the message. And Timothy is sent in to clear up the mess. 
His main job is stop the false teaching, appoint some reliable leaders. In the middle of that, uh, Paul gives him this instruction. Permit the women to learn. Not women need to learn and not teach, but Timothy, permit the women to learn. If they've been taught properly in the first place, we might not be in this mess. It's the strongest verb in the passage. I don't permit, not I never permit, the Greek is I am not at the moment permitting. A woman to teach or have authority over a man. Not the normal word for authority. The only time in the whole of the New Testament that that word is used. There's perfectly good words for authority that are used about Christian leadership and so on. This is not one of them. Its very tone implies inappropriate leadership. Probably self-appointed leadership, maybe dominating leadership. What I'm saying possibly is the moment you get a New Testament word that is only used once, you haven't got lots of others to compare with and you have to see how it's used outside. It's always used negatively. Even a, a, a hint of murder in a couple of the secular uses. Now, of course, he does not permit dominating or self-appointed leadership. And then, then he gives his reasons uh, from the creation story, a creation story in which there is no subordination of women to men. So, in my view, uh, Read Derek and Diane Tittle and all of this stuff, the message of women in the Bible Speaks Today series. It's really good. Uh, husband and wife writing together, both ministers. Uh, the reason he is the women are to him, Timothy is to see that the women are taught, is because of their creation birthright. The, that the man was created first and then the woman, and she, as the equal in Genesis 1 and 2, has equally the right to be taught. When the fall happened, it happened to be that the first one to disobey was Eve. Uh, and and he, later on in Timothy, he talks about as Eve was, as Eve was deceived. So, if there's an openness to deception for not having been taught, teach! And then you get a really, really difficult verse about childbirth, which nobody understands properly, and I'll give you three possible reasons for it if you ask me, but I'm not going to go into it now. So the whole point of 1 Timothy is not there, there can never be a woman teaching. That uh, they need to be properly taught to be able to exercise proper teaching. And it's addressed in a context where there is false teaching by men that's caused the problem. Uh, and Timothy is sent in to fix it. There is nothing in 1 Timothy 2 that is a permanent rule about men, uh, about women not teaching. And then the last two things I want to say to you. Let's go back to the book of Acts. The Spirit is poured out in the last, uh, on women as well as men, at very least Mary was there, we know, and there would have been a lot of others. Uh, in the lots, the Spirit will have been poured out on those women who went to Galilee, who travelled with him from Galilee, who travelled with him there. What's happening? God pours out His Spirit on all flesh, sons and daughters will prophesy. Young men 
will see visions, old men will dream dreams, even on my scraps, both men and women, I will pour out on my spirit and will grow. God's spirit, which is empowering for witness, his equipping for ministry, and his equipping for leadership, is poured out whether you are old or young, whether you are male or female, and whether you are powerful or powerless in the world of the time, even if you're a slave. And there's this wonderful echo, this is the last scripture I'm going to use to impress me on a few, of actually the Galatians passage. New creation, new anointing, new possibilities, new life in Christ. So I think on this subject this is a moment of opportunity. A moment where the church can show that the gospel is the great source of liberation for both women and men. To show that there can be a different sort of community, of mutuality, which gives hope to the world, which is based on freedom, mercy, dignity, purity. Now, some of those words I haven't justified in the talk because I've skipped lots of stuff from 1 Corinthians because I want you to ask me the questions. Uh, <clears throat> we need, even in talk about marriage, to get out of this awful conversation about who's in charge. To let there be a real mutuality between men and women, both in leadership teams and in uh, and in <clears throat> and in marriage and in every part of the church. And if God wishes to raise up new Junius and new Priscillas and new Phoebes and all the others, while well, He did it in the New Testament, that's our foundation documents. Why should there be any problem about it happening today? because it doesn't cause any cultural events where we are. End of introduction. Well, um, thank you very much, Bishop Graham. That was absolutely brilliant. Um, we are going to have a Q&A time shortly. Um, however, what I'd like to do is, in the meantime, for just over 10 minutes, if we take a brief intermission, and during this time, uh, I would highly recommend that you chat amongst yourselves um, about some of the issues that have been brought up, but also that you take this as an opportunity to think of the questions you want to ask.